uh, since this is the house of God and uh, the gate of heaven, whenever we're present in the Catholic Church, we should keep a reverent silence. If we have to talk, we can go outside or downstairs. But we should always preserve a reverent silence. And uh, the second thing, for people that aren't familiar with it, just to note on communion. Because communion is a visible statement before God and man that the person presenting himself for communion is a Catholic in the state of grace. In other words, he's someone that's in union with the Pope, confesses all the things that the church teaches, and he's in the state of grace. He's not aware of any mortal sin since his last confession. He's making a, a statement before God and man when he comes up for communion. So it's intellectually not honest if a person isn't Catholic to come up. You can just stay in your pews and pray. Uh, for those that are receiving communion, the, the, there's a special ceremony here. St. Thomas teaches that the amount of grace we get at a sacrament is, is proportional to the disposition that, we, that with which we receive it. See, our, after our first Holy Communion, if we're not saints, it's not because of some defect in our Lord. It's because of our disposition. And in this, this particular rite, our disposition is to take off for because you kneel down before the Lord, and then the priest actually gives you a personal benediction with the host. And as he's bringing, you don't say anything, you just you close your eyes and tip your head back a little bit and stick your tongue part way out. I won't miss. And, uh, and what, what the priest is saying, let me, let me do it. May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul under life everlasting. Amen. I even see the amen. So the whole reason you're trying to pray that you have the holiest holy communion you've ever had. And you get a blessing and, and a communion at the same time. And the prayers of the church affect what they signify. So those are the, the, a couple of differences that we keep silence and we receive communion kneeling for the Catholics that do receive. All right. Before we uh, open the parish mission, uh, I've chatted with a few people, and I thought it might be a good idea to make sure that everyone here has a really clear idea of just what a, a parish mission is. So what is a parish mission? What's the point here? What are we trying to accomplish? We'll answer that by reading from the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia. And th in this, as throughout the whole mission, the, the different quotes I'm gonna, I, I just edit and cut and paste for the sake of time. Parish missions are special exertions of the apostolic activity of the church meant to instruct Catholics more fully in the truths of their religion, convert sinners, rouse the torpid, indifferent, and lift the good to a still higher plane of spiritual effort. Such missions usually consist of a systematic course of preaching and instruction extended over a stated number of days performed by authorized missionaries. That great doctor of the church, St. Alphonsus Liguori, states that, quote, there's nothing that is better adapted than missions or retreats to enlighten the minds of men, to purify corrupt hearts, and to lead all to the exercises of a truly Christian life, close quote. Parish missions are for the laity what retreats are for the clergy and religious communities. In fact, they are an adaptation to the needs and capacity of the faithful of the spiritual exercises long tradition of the church that were made use of, especially during the ages of faith when people were in the habit of going to monasteries to devote themselves for a certain period of time to that renewal in the spirit of their mind, which St. Paul the Apostle recommends in Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, where he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man who according to God is created in justice and holiness of truth. In times like the present, this is written a little over a hundred years ago, in times like the present and in the social conditions of modern life, hundred years ago, the ordinary care of souls hardly suffices to protect souls against the deadly influences of constant friction with the materialistic world and against the all-pervading atmosphere of sensuality and worldliness. This is a hundred years ago. 
Passing their lives face to face with such extraordinary spiritual perils, Catholics in the 20th century need the extraordinary succor and protection which are furnished only by the mission. It is no exaggeration to say that in the ordinary course of divine providence, a mission is the greatest grace that God can confer on any parish. Close quotes. It's no exaggeration to say that in the ordinary course of divine providence, a mission is the greatest grace that God can confer on any parish. There's another way to prove from actual experience what a great grace a parish mission is. It's the same thing uh, whenever you preach a mission. I'd be willing to bet good money that during this past week, a lot of you had more disagreements and more unpleasant encounters than usual. A lot of you are stressed out, suffering from some kind of malaise. I know that there's people here that have been sick. There's probably plenty that think the whole idea of a mission is sort of annoying or off-putting, maybe even irritating, like a waste of time and you're planning not to come, etc., etc. Now, who do you suppose is behind all that? The times we're in, and the times we're going in, it'd be a real good idea to know how to ward off attacks. Of course, first you have to recognize attacks. We'll talk a little bit about spiritual warfare and how to handle that sort of thing towards the end of the mission. And by the way, I see uh, right now you're in the middle of a very uh, impressive uh, remodeling here. And uh, so the typical uh, temptation or attack like that we see in the gospel. When St. Mary Magdalene came with that jar of alabaster, alabaster jar that was full of spikenard and broke it and poured it out on the Lord's foot. And what did Judas say? That money could have been spent on the poor. He's starting to worry about it. If you're going to remodel it, do something beautiful for God. If we have these beautiful things, like a beautiful church like this, I'd have forgotten how beautiful it was till I got here. If we have that, that's because our ancestors knew that it was important to do beautiful things for God. And one of the sad parts of our day and age is it looks like we're building 1970-style bus depots for most of our churches. You have something beautiful here. You have to do something very, very fitting. Pull a cork out. It's for God. And that beauty's for the poor, too. Do something beautiful for God. Okay, that's just parenthetical because I'm looking around. It's great. The simple fact is, though, that every one of you needs to make every effort to come to every minute of the mission. I already know this stuff. It's for you. Our Lady has prepared particular graces for each one of you, and you don't want to miss out on those. We're going to need everything we can get in the times we're in and the times we're going into. And remember, it's no exaggeration to say that in the ordinary course of divine providence, a parish mission is the greatest grace that God can confer on any parish. Okay, so how should we approach a mission in order to maximize the graces we receive? What sort of dispositions should we bring to a mission? And we just heard parish missions are for the laity, but retreats are for the clergy and the religious. We, we have to go under canon law and retreat every year. Uh, it's understood that the whole parish can't just typically pack up and go to some traditional monastery somewhere and you have to be busy about many things in the world. But, so it's hard to make a serious commitment. That's understood. It does take a real commitment to come every night. But you should make that commitment. The mission is dedicated to Our Lady and she's going to reward even the smallest efforts to enter in the spirit of the mission. So how do we enter into it? Insofar as it's possible, you're living in the world, you have to be busy, but try to retreat from social type obligations. Enter into yourself. Consider the topics being proposed. Ask Our Lady to help you gain all the graces possible. There are miracles of grace, literally miracles of grace associated with reflecting on and contemplating the message of Fatima. I've seen reprobates, and that's the very worst kind of sinner. And I personally know reprobates that have converted because of this message. There's unbelievable graces 
attached to that. These miracles of graces of conversion are there for you too. But in order to get these graces, you have to mull the things over. You have to enter into yourself, as we heard St. Paul talk about, and enter in and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Okay? You have to enter in. From all eternity, God has set aside specific grace for Our Lady to give at this mission. But you have to do your part. So think on it, reflect on it in the next few days during this time of grace. Actually, during the mission, I ask you not to read up on Fatima. After the mission, you can and you should read up on it. But Romans 10, 17, the inspired inner word of God says, Faith comes from hearing. And so what's being proposed to you, you want to reflect on that, and then you can take that after your reflections later on, and I hope you do read up, and at the end of the mission, I'll have a reading list of suggested things on this and other spiritual topics anyway. But you, what you want to do is, that's why you want to enter in. You want to have this spirit like a retreat where you're thinking about the things proposed to you, okay? So that means also you want to keep the TV off, reduce your time on the internet and electronic devices unless you absolutely have to be on. But you can do it, it's Lent. If you listen to music, Limit it to chant, polyphony, or broke. I'm serious, it's Lent. Because the next few days are meant to be like a retreat, a spiritual time, a time of real spiritual growth. And so you want to do things that won't interfere with that. A few practical considerations before we start. During the week, uh, conferences will be followed by exposition. He, Father put in the bulletin the, the Stations of the Cross, but it'll be, it'll be exposition today as well. And during the exposition, we'll expose the Blessed Sacrament, and then I'll go back and hear confessions till they're done. I'll stay till they're done. I don't care how long that takes. And then we'll have benediction at the end of that. So you're free to stay and pray as long as you want. Go to confession, what have you. I'll also be, be here. Uh, I'll be here for the morning confessions. And I'll just sit through the, the whole time he's in Mass. I'll be back in confession. Because during the week while I'm here, Father's graciously allowed me. I'll take care of all the confessions during that time. And I want to just say something like that. Don't worry about telling me anything in confession. I'm not actually sitting in the confessional waiting for you to tell me how great you are. i got to go to confession too. And that's not the object of the exercise. Uh, I spent almost my entire priesthood in big cities and almost nine years in the very worst uh, part of the hood, in a very serious gang-infested part of the city. I've been a confessor for a big city jail. So I'm only speaking slightly tongue-in-cheek where this is the mess in blue light special. If you tell me something I haven't heard before, I'll do the penance for you. You can't, you, you won't be able to come up with anything. I'm not going to be worried, and I don't know your voice. You can get rid of it and get out. I'm out of here. I don't know who you are. You're good to go. So it's your opportunity. If there's something out that's really been bothering you, get rid of it like that, okay? And I'm happy to help. And you could tell me the worst things in the world, we could go shoot pool later on because it just goes away. It has absolutely no effect, so don't worry about that. I don't care on the nights, too. Don't tell yourself, oh, he's going to be here too late. I don't care if we're here all night because I get, I get graces in the mission by taking care of you. That's how it works for me. That's what, what I'm in it for is I get those graces by helping you. Okay, after the last confession, everybody will have benediction, repose the most blessed sacrament. Okay, Our Lady is holding out grace to each and every one here. So, let's say three Hail Marys, asking Our Lady right now, really from the bottom of our hearts, to remove any obstacles that we might have to keep, keep ourselves from opening up completely to her and accepting with all our hearts all that she has to give us. So, we're going to start by saying three Hail Marys right now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Now Mary, full grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Now Mary, full grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. 
Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Because this is not just a sermon, but the first conference of the mission, I'll preach a little longer than you might be used to. The next conference isn't until tomorrow night, so please ponder the themes that are proposed today. Some of you are going to be familiar with, uh, with much of what I'm going to say, but some of the themes are new. Just to let you know, today I will use coded language, but tomorrow, since it's a mission, I will not use euphemisms. So throughout the mission, I've edited and cut and pasted the quotes. So, you know, if the kids come, I won't use euphemisms when I talk about San Francisco behavior, for example. Okay, so let's get started. Fatima, message for our times. Ave Maria Purissima. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. In her last public interview, Sister Lucia told Father Augustine Fuentes, he's the vice postulator for the case of Blessed Francisco and Blessed Jacinta, quote, Father, the Most Holy Virgin, is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message neither the good nor the bad. The good continue on their way, but without giving any importance to her message. The bad, not seeing the punishment of God actually falling upon them, continue their life of sin without even caring about the message. But believe me, Father, God will chastise the world, and this will be in a terrible manner. Close quote. The Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. Now, one of the more common prejudices of the modern intellectual elites is a dogmatic rejection of even the possibility that something like a miracle could take place. Ernest Renan, he's the 19th century French infidel and, and biblical critic, has perhaps the best summary of this attitude. I quote, No miracle has ever taken place under conditions which science can accept. Experience shows that without exception, the miracles occur only in times and only in countries in which miracles are believed in and only in the presence of persons who are disposed to believe in them. Close quote. So there we have an elegant summary of one of the most typical prejudices of our modern intellectual elites. No miracle has ever taken place under conditions which science can accept. Experience shows that without exception, miracles occur only at times and only in countries in which miracles are believed in and only in the presence of persons who are disposed to believe in them. So today we're going to consider a miracle which completely defies those sort of claims. A miracle which took place under conditions which science can accept. A miracle which took place in the presence of persons not disposed to believe in it. But before we consider that miracle, we're going to back up and briefly consider the answer to several questions. First, what exactly is a miracle? Second, what sort of evidence is required to determine whether or not a miracle has occurred? And third, what's the point of a miracle? What are we supposed to take away from it? So first, what exactly is a miracle? What's a miracle? We'll answer that question just by quoting from a standard theology manual. A miracle is an occurrence outside the course of nature, 
perceptible to the senses, and explicable only as a direct act of God himself. A miracle is obviously a clear proof of the divine origin of the doctrine whose support in which it is wrought. The only question to be decided in connection with miracles is whether, in a given case, a miracle has occurred or not. Close quote. Okay, so a miracle is an occurrence outside the course of nature, which we can perceive with our senses, and which can only be explained as a direct act of God himself. Oh, then the next question arises. So how do we go about determining, in a given case, whether or not a miracle has occurred? The 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia explains, quote, A miracle, like any natural event, is known either from personal observation or from the testimony of others. That makes perfect sense since a miracle can be perceived with our senses. So again, a miracle, like any natural event, is known either from personal observation or from the testimony of others. The general rules governing the acceptance of testimony apply to miracles as to other facts of history. If we have certain evidence for the fact, we are bound to accept it. The evidence for miracles, as for historical facts in general, depends on the knowledge and the veracity of the narrators. The extraordinary nature of the miracle requires more complete and accurate investigation. Such testimony we are not free to reject. Otherwise, we must deny all history whatsoever. We have no more rational warrant for rejecting miracles than for rejecting accounts of solar eclipses. Close quotes. So a miracle, like any natural event, is known either from personal observation or from the testimony of others. If we have certain evidence for the fact, we're bound to accept it. We have no more rational warrant for rejecting miracles than for rejecting accounts of solar eclipses. So here's the point. A miracle, any miracle, is at its most fundamental level simply a historical fact. In other words, at the most fundamental level, belief in the reality of a particular miracle has exactly the same basis as our belief in the other historical fact. For example, that we believe there was a battle of Alamo or that Dwight Eisenhower was the President of the United States. It's important to keep in mind that even though a miracle is an act of God, a recognizable and astonishing act of God, it doesn't take faith as such to recognize a miracle. After all, the Pharisees and the Sadducees could all recognize the miracle of our Lord raising Lazarus from the dead. They even plot to kill him again. They could see it as a historical fact, but that certainly didn't mean that they had faith. So a miracle, like any historical event, is known either from personal observation or from the testimony of others. It can be perceived with the senses, and the general rules governing the acceptance of testimony apply to miracles as to other facts of history. So given all that, then what are the general rules for deciding questions of history such as miracles? Questions of history, historical statements, historical claims are determined on the basis of evidence. When we want to determine the reliability, the truth of a historical claim, we look at the evidence. For example, are there witnesses? Are there documents? Are there artifacts? Artifacts are things like tapes, monuments, footprints, gravestones, and so forth. Are they consistent? Are they reliable? That's essential to understand. Historical statements, historical claims, questions of history are determined on the basis of evidence. We want to determine the truth of a historical claim, we look at the evidence. So we ask, are there witnesses? Are there documents? Are there artifacts? Bloodstains, films, footprints? Are they consistent? Are they reliable? 
That is, in fact, how the church herself approaches the question of miracles. Before the church proclaims the authenticity of a miracle, traditionally, there's a very rigorous investigation along these very lines. So, for example, if a reliable, consistent witnesses testify to a particular event, for example, eyewitnesses that describe a healing at Lourdes, if reliable documentation testifies to that event, for example, medical records, documentation, descriptions of the person before and after the healing, if there are artifacts that support and corroborate the descriptions of this particular event, for example, photographs and x-rays of the person before and after a miraculous healing, then it's the height of arrogance and a clear demonstration of a profound level of blindness to deny the reality of such a miracle. In point of fact, this would be the deliberate rejection of the known truth. That's a very, very serious intellectual sin. It's actually one of the sins against the Holy Ghost. Now, one common exception I've heard many times, probably because I'm trained as a scientist, is that miracles are not scientific. Miracles are not scientific, whatever that means. As someone pointed out years ago, science has added absolutely nothing to our knowledge that makes a miracle any more astonishing or any less believable than it would have been in the olden days. For example, since the days of Adam, everybody knows that if you drop a rock, it falls to the ground. If by a miracle this, this, this stone started hovering in the air, even though science has given a name, gravity, to the law which describes how the, law, how the stone falls, and even though scientists could do sophisticated calculations on the rate at which the stone should fall, Still, the miracle of a hovering rock wouldn't be the slightest bit more astonishing nowadays than it would have been back in the olden days. In fact, I was talking to some Catholics from the Syro-Malabar Rite. That's one of the Eastern Rites of the Catholics. We're, we're Latin Rite. I assume everybody here is, but maybe there's some Greek Catholics. I was talking to some Catholics from the Syro-Malabar Rite. They're from Kerala, India. And they described how one of the miracles that the Apostle St. Thomas, who converted their ancestors, the Apostle St. Thomas did that converted their ancestors. So there's a group of Hindus splashing themselves with water as they wash themselves. And St. Thomas asked them if they or their holy men could make water stare in the air. And they laughed and said, of course not. So he scooped up some water and just tossed it into the air, which is where it stayed. And that got their undivided attention. Anyhow, the point here is science has made absolutely nothing to our knowledge that makes a miracle like that any more astonishing and it's less believable than it would have been back in the olden days. Everybody knows if water's hovering in air, that's a pretty amazing thing. Okay, we also need to keep in mind, there's absolutely no difference between the trust we place in scientists to accurately report their observations and the trust we place in eyewitnesses to historical events to reliably report their observations. In either case, whether we're dealing with an absolutely unique historical event or we're dealing with repeatable experimental results in a lab, in either case, we're dealing with human testimony. So we judge the claims of miracles just like any other historical question on the basis of evidence. Are there witnesses? Are there documents? Are there artifacts? Things like gravestones, bloody knives, sculptures. Are they consistent? Are they reliable? Okay. So now we've considered what a miracle is and how we assess it, but we'll pose one last and important question. Why does God perform miracles? What's the point? Every miracle in the first place is for the glory of God and the good of men, but there are also secondary reasons for a miracle. For example, sometimes God performs a miracle as a witness to the true holiness of one of his special friends. We think of so many miracles of Padre Pio. Sometimes he performs a miracle to confirm a doctrine of faith and morals. We think of miracles like the bleeding hosts that we see occasionally. 
And sometimes he performs a miracle to confirm the truth of a divine mission. He's actually sent somebody out with a message. All that by way of introduction. Today we're going to consider a miracle which completely defies the arrogant claims that no miracle has ever taken place under conditions which science can accept, that without exception, miracles occur only in times and only in countries in which miracles are believed in and only in the presence of people who are disposed to believe in them. And although we're all actually familiar with this miracle, there are two good reasons to take a closer look. First, because we have family, friends, and acquaintances who aren't leading an authentic Catholic life, or perhaps we never had the priceless gift of faith in the first place. They might not have. And, since it doesn't take faith as such to recognize a miracle, if we can make a good case to these friends or relatives that this particular miracle is a historical fact, that has the potential to open a door to an authentic faith. And that really happens. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because this miracle in itself has a profound meaning and it confirms the truth of a message of the utmost importance for each one of us here. The utmost importance. So let's turn to the question. The miracle we're going to look at, we're going to consider it from the point of view as a historical event. We're talking about the miracle of the sun at Fatima on October 13, 1917. And again, we're going to consider it from the point of view as a historical event. At the time of the miracle, Portugal was ruled by Freemasons for months, oh, secular. Now this was the anti-Catholic uh, liberal daily newspaper of Lisbon had been regularly mocking the events in Fatima using both cartoons and articles. Reporting on the July apparition in mocking terms, that's the one where they got the message, the paper reported, quote, the children intoned a funeral chant made epileptic gestures and fell into ecstasy, close quote. According to the paper, the real reason for all the commotion up at Fatima was the clergy were hoping to make a pile of money by locating a new source of mineral water up there just like at Lourdes. Another Portuguese newspaper reported on the events of August 13th in an article entitled, quote, Fanaticism in Action, the miracle, the miracle, they put that in quotes, the miracle of Fatima, close quote. So that's the title of it, Fanaticism in Action, the Miracle of Fatima. In this article, speaking of the fanaticism up in Fatima, the author speaks of, quote, the urgent need to combat this evil which continues to extend its dark tentacles to squeeze and asphyxiate all Portuguese society, close quote. And all this blasphemous nonsense was actually welcomed by the readers because at that time, Lisbon was so dominated by atheists that in 1915, it had actually been proclaimed to be the atheist country, capital of the world. So in order to set the miracle in its proper historical context, we need to recognize the extremely hostile, deeply Freemasonic cultural environment of the press and the elites in Portugal in 1917, characterized by a mocking disbelief in anything and everything having to do with Catholicism, including a complete rejection of even the possibility of miracles. How many witnesses were present at the miracle? Dr. Almeida Garrett, a physician, estimated the number of spectators at over 100,000. Avelina de Almeida, now he's the editor-in-chief of O Seculo, so that's the anti-clerical newspaper which had been mocking events in previous months, went there himself and he states, quote, on October 13th, according to the calculations of completely unbiased people, some 50,000 people were gathered at the Moor of Fatima, close quote. Now his estimate by the Freemason is considered to be a minimum figure, which is why the majority of historians estimate there were probably somewhere around 70,000 witnesses in the crowd. Why were roughly 70,000 witnesses gathered in a money field standing in the rain in Fatima on October 13th? Because for three months, since July 13th, three small children 
who could neither read nor write. Lucia dos Santos, now she was 10 years old, and two cousins, Francisco Marta and Jacinta Marta. Francisco at the time was nine and Jacinta was seven. They had been predicting that Our Lady would perform a great miracle on October 13th, a miracle been publicly announced three months in advance as to the precise date, time, and place. There is literally nothing like this in the entire history of the world. And that's saying something. This is literally, literally an unparalleled historical event. The precise date, time, and place of a public miracle had been announced three months in advance by illiterate peasant children from a tiny village in the hills of Portugal. That's why 70,000 witnesses were present. Who were the witnesses? Men from all social classes and all cultural levels, the undecided but curious, the faithful that were confident of seeing a miracle, scientists, skeptics, unbelievers, even fanatics looking for a cha chance to amuse themselves and pour scorn on the believers, all were gathered there side by side in Fatima. One Portuguese historian notes, quote, at the moment of the great miracle, there were present some of the most illustrious men of letters in the arts and sciences, and almost all were unbelievers coming out of simple curiosity, led by the prediction of the seers, close quote. This is also why it's an absolutely unparalleled historical event. You have thousands upon thousands of hostile witnesses. What do the witnesses see? Although we could cite testimonies for hours, literally, for the sake of time, we'll glance at a few testimonies of eyewitnesses. One historian notes, quote, the witnesses of the event were indeed innumerable, their testimonies agree, and we are flooded with the documents they have left us, close quote. So I'm just cutting and splicing quotes, putting it together from different eyewitnesses so you get, get an idea of what happened. Although the rain had been steadily pelting down all morning, it suddenly stopped. And just as suddenly, the sky cleared. This abrupt chain of weather took all the eyewitnesses by surprise. It was a day of heavy and continuous rain, but a few moments before the miracle, it stopped raining. Suddenly, all the clouds disappeared without the slightest breeze, and the sun was shining in a clear sky. There were also changes of color and atmosphere. I looked first at the nearest objects, and then extended my glass further afield as far as the horizon. I saw that everything had assumed an amethyst color. Objects around me, the sky and the atmosphere, were of the same color. An oak tree cast a shadow nearby of this color on the ground. Soon I heard a peasant near me shout out in tones of amazement, Look, that lady is all yellow. And in fact, everything both near and far changed, taking on the color of old yellow damask. People looked as if they were suffering from jaundice, and I recall a sensation of amusement at seeing them look so ugly and unattractive. My own hand was the same color. Close quotes. So the miracle starts with the rain suddenly stopping and the sky clearing, and then the sunlight goes to different colors of the rainbow. For a description of what happened next, we'll turn to Avelino del Almeida. Nobody can accuse this guy of being a favorable witness. As we've said, he's the chief editor of Oseculo, the Freemasonic newspaper, the Daily in Lisbon, who traveled to Fatima in order to report on the events. This account is taken from his article in the Freemasonic newspaper, quote, and then we witnessed a unique spectacle, an incredible spectacle, unbelievable if you did not witness it. From the road where the carriages were crowded together, where hundreds of persons had stayed for want of sufficient courage to advance across the muddy ground, we saw the huge crowd turn towards the sun, which appeared at its zenith, clear of the clouds. 
It resembled a disc of silver, and it was possible to stare at it without the least discomfort. It did not burn the eyes. It did not blind. We would say that it produced an eclipse. Then a tremendous cry rang out, and the crowd nearest us were heard to shout, Miracle! Miracle! Marvel! Marvel! The attitude of the people takes us back to biblical times. Dumbfounded, with their heads uncovered, they contemplated the blue sky. Before their dazzled eyes, the sun trembled. It made strange and abrupt movements outside of all cosmic laws, and according to the typical expression of the peasants, the sun danced. Close quote. Although he was attacked violently by his colleagues in the anti-clerical press, 15 days later, he renewed his testimony. And this time, he published a dozen photographs of the immense ecstatic crowd. And I want to point out, when you see the pictures of the people looking up, that's the Freemason pictures, if you've looked at pictures of during the miracle. And he repeats as a refrain through his whole article, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. He concludes, Miracle, as the people shouted, natural phenomenon, as experts say, for the moment, that does not concern me. I am only affirming what I saw. The rest is a matter for science and the church. Close quotes. By the way, if you study those po photographs, nearly everyone is staring at the sun, and almost none are shading their eyes. And you can see from the shadows, but there's a few of them, but you'll see all those people, and they're just staring right at it. Okay, anyway, that's a remarkable testimony in itself. The most terrifying aspect of the miracle took place immediately after the dance of the sun. The sun suddenly seemed to plunge towards earth. Quote, then suddenly one heard a clamor, a cry of anguish breaking from all the people. The sun, whirling wildly, seemed all at once to loosen itself from the firmament, and blood red plunged towards earth, threatened to crush us with its huge and fiery weight. The sensation during those moments was truly terrible. It seemed like a wheel of fire was going to fall on the people. Close quotes. Quote, everyone within an area of 32 miles thought it was the end of the world. One witness, who's later a contractor in California, was about 10 miles away from Fatima. At the time he was 12 years old, he was herding sheep. He said, I don't remember to this day what happened to the sheep. All I can remember is that this fireball came down upon the earth. And I knew I was about to be burnt alive. And I ran. And I ran, and I ran, and I ran. All I can remember is my fear. And I've often waked up at night running from the fire. Quote, we thought it was the end of the world. The fire of the sun was on top of us. At the time the fire was coming on us, there were shouts. Parents were throwing themselves, protecting all over their children. People were shouting their sins out loud and confessing, crying for mercy. They fell to their knees in the mud and the water, confessed their sins and called for mercy. And what happened? The fire went back into the sky. Close quotes. These are all quotes from eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who thought they were going to be burnt to death with fire falling from the heavens. Terrified parents instinctively throwing themselves over their children to protect them. People screaming out their sins and crying for mercy. Eyewitnesses who thought it was the end of the world. And all these people, who for the most part were soaked to the bone, were amazed to discover they were dry and so was the ground. Quote, This enormous multitude was drenched for it rained unceasingly since dawn. 
But although this may appear incredible, after the great miracle, everyone felt comfortable and found his garments quite dry, a subject of general wonder. My suit dried in an instant. The moment one would least expect it, our clothes were totally dry. Close quotes. To those who might claim that the miracle was a product of mass hysteria or mass hypnosis at the scene, God himself had prearranged a rebuttal. Perfectly credible witnesses, who were very far from Fatima, saw the miracle of the sun. For example, the whole village of Albiritel, it's about 12 miles from Fatima, saw the miracle of the sun. Father Nacio Lorenco recalls, quote, I was only nine years old at this time and I went to the local village school. At about midday, we were surprised by the shouts and cries of some men and women who were passing the street. The teacher, a good pious woman, was the first to run into the road with the children after her. Outside, the people were shouting and weeping and pointing to the sun. It was the great miracle, which one could see distinctly from the top of the hill where my village was situated. Objects around us turned all the colors of the rainbow. I feel incapable of describing what I saw and felt. I looked fixedly at the sun, which seemed pale and did not hurt the eyes. Looking like a ball of snow revolving upon itself, it suddenly seemed to come down in a zigzag, menacing the earth. Terrified, I ran and hid myself among the people who were weeping and expecting the end of the world at any moment. At least 70,000 witnesses braving the rain and mud. Suddenly the sky clears, the sun shoots out the clouds of the rainbow, it whirls and spins and dances, then it seems to break free and hurtles towards earth. People convinced they're about to break, burn alive, fall to their knees in the mud and water, confess their sins, cry for mercy, and then the sun retreats, leaving everyone in dry clothes on dry ground. At least 70,000 witnesses, thousands of them, not believers. Finally, there are also moral miracles. The conversions of many people. Quote, the captain of the regiment of the soldiers on the mountain that day, with orders to prevent the gathering of the cloud, was converted instantly. So were hundreds of other unbelievers. There was an unbeliever there who had spent the morning mocking the simpletons who had gone off to Fatima just to see an ordinary girl. He now seemed paralyzed, his eyes fixed on the sun. He began to tremble from head to foot, and lifting up his arms, fell to his knees in the mud, crying out to God, Our Lady, Our Lady. Close quote. Remember that a miracle, like any natural event, is known either from personal observation or the testimony to others. The general rules for accepting testimony apply to miracles as to other facts of history. The evidence for miracles as for historical facts in general depends on the knowledge and veracity of the narrators. Such testimony we are not free to reject, otherwise we must deny all history whatsoever. If we have certain evidence for the fact, we are bound to accept it. We have no more rational warrant for rejecting miracles than for rejecting accounts of solar eclipses. So what have we seen? We've seen only a snippet of testimonies from the witnesses of the miracle of the sun, some of whom were radical anti-Catholics, some of whom were believers, all of whom were there in response to an unprecedented prediction that a miracle would occur on that date, in that place, at that very time. The believers were there in anticipation of seeing a miracle, the atheists and anti-clerical press were there, smirks firmly locked in place, with great expectations of dealing a crushing blow to all these Catholic morons. There are accounts published before the miracle mocking the predictions. I read you excerpts from two of them. 
Their photographs of the crowd, their testimonies, written, taped, and filmed from massive numbers of the 70-some thousand witnesses. They're distant witnesses who could not possibly be accused of being under the influence of some sort of group hypnosis or suggestion. The conclusion is obvious. The miracle of the sun is a historical fact. Pure, plain, and simple. If after considering the evidence, someone still wouldn't believe the miracle of the sun actually happened, it's perfectly reasonable to ask him, on what basis does he believe the Battle of the Alamo happened? There sure weren't 70 witnesses to that. There's an even easier question. Just ask him what his birthday is and ask him on what basis does he believe that to be true? Because there certainly weren't 70,000 witnesses to that either. The miracle of the sun and the prophecy of that miracle, three months in advance, are verifiable historical facts. And it's obvious that both the precise fulfillment of that prophecy as to the date, time, and place, as well as the events of the miracle itself, can only be explained by direct acts of God himself. Let's make sure we realize how utterly amazing this is by pausing for a moment to put this event into its proper historical context. If we stand back a little and consider the entire history of the world, to put the miracle of the sun in context, we can see that we have five roughly comparable events, five similar miracles of absolutely incredible magnitude. There's the parting of the Red Sea by Moses. There's the stopping of the sun and the moon in the sky by the prophet Joshua. There's the moving of the sun backwards in the sky ten full hours by the prophet Isaiah. There's the total eclipse of the sun during a full moon, which is impossible. It took place at the crucifixion of our Lord. And there's the miracle of the sun by Our Lady. In the whole history of the world, there's only five of these miracles. Four of those miracles are found in the Holy Bible. Three in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. And out of those miracles, there's only one that was predicted beforehand. Three months beforehand. And we still have some very old people that were alive in 1917. That's Fatima. It's completely incredible. In the entire history of the world, the miracle of the sun is an absolutely unique and unparalleled event. It's absolutely unique. You should let that sink in. A unique event in history. We're being told something important here. Now let's stop and ask one last and very important question. Why? Did God perform that miracle? Now, obviously, it confirms the truth that Our Lady was appearing to the children and had a message. So the miracle points to her message to the children. But the miracle itself wasn't some random event. God never acts without a purpose. God never acts without a purpose. The miracle itself has a meaning. It's meant to tell us something. So what does the miracle mean in itself? Well, in this case, the apocalyptic overtones are obvious. That's not reading a meaning into the miracle after the fact, as we've just heard. The witnesses themselves were convinced of this. The nearly unanimous reaction of the witnesses was that they were seeing the end of the world. To see apocalyptic imagery in this miracle is also consistent with the tradition of the church. In that regard, a few statements by the great doctor of the church, St. Alphonsus Liguori, are well worth pondering. 
St. Alphonsus here is writing of the signs that will appear in the heavens before Judgment Day. And he's summarizing the teaching of the fathers in regards to one line in the gospel. The powers of heaven shall be moved. I read from St. Alphonsus. Another sign of the end of the world will be, and the powers of heaven shall be moved. Some understand this to mean tremors and unusual movements which will occur in the heavens. That is, the firmness of the heavens will seem to be lacking as it will tremble before the Lord comes to judge the world. Close quote. End quote. The coming of the judge will be preceded by fire. Fire will descend from heaven, will burn the earth and all things upon the earth. The earth, defiled by sin, must be purified by fire. Close quote. St. Alphonsus Liguori. Tremors and unusual movements in the heavens. The firmness of the heavens will seem to be lacking as they will tremble. Fire will descend from heaven. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but to me that sounds like the miracle of the sun. But since God never acts without a purpose, it's very fruitful to meditate on this amazing event. People are concerned with the message of Our Lady to the children, and they should be, and we're going to spend time on that during this mission. But the miracle itself has a meaning and it's meant to tell us something. So what does it mean in itself? We'll use the scriptures as a basis for reflection. We're going to quickly consider two aspects of these miracles. We're going to base ourselves on scripture from the second chapter of 2 Peter. So we're going to look at St. Peter's second epistle in the second chapter, starting at verse 5, and I'm slightly abridging it. Quote, God spared not the original world, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly, and reducing the cities of the Sodomites and the Gomorrahites into ashes, and delivered just Lot, oppressed by the injustice and lewd conversation of the wicked. Close quote, the inspired inerrant word of God. So in this scripture, St. Peter speaks of God's judgment at the time of Noah, in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. So what does any of that have to do with the miracle of the sun? We'll answer that by considering two aspects of the miracle. First aspect, the parting of the clouds and the sun shooting out all the colors of the rainbow. So you have the rain, the parting of the clouds, and the colors of the rainbow. My personal opinion is that the downpour, which suddenly ceased, followed immediately by the clearing of the sky and the sun then shooting out various colors, all that's meant to remind us of the great flood and the rainbow. The rainbow is a visible reminder on the one hand that even if we don't understand, as long as we're faithful, like Noah and his family, then even if the whole world be swallowed up in a flood, God is merciful and will take care of us. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, the rainbow is also a sign of what happens to men if they're evil and faithless and disobey God. The rainbow is a visible sign that God will never destroy the entire world with water again. And so this aspect of the miracle is meant to remind us of God's judgment. That as St. Peter said, he spared not the original world when he brought the flood in on the world of the ungodly. Second aspect, falling of the sun. The falling of the sun is meant to remind us of the fire from the sky that, as St. Peter said, reduced the cities of the Sodomites and Gomorrahites to ashes. At the same time, it's also meant to remind us of the fire from the sky that both scripture and tradition tell us will destroy the world before our Lord comes to judge the living and the dead. And so this aspect of the miracle is also meant to remind us of God's judgment. And as we've seen, the witnesses themselves were convinced that the sun was falling. They thought they were seeing the end of the world. So the rain and the rainbow symbolize the punishment of the flood at Noah's time, and the falling of the sun symbolizes the fire from the sky that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What's even more interesting is both those biblical judgments 
are intimately related. Now, what do you mean by that, Father? Both the judgment on the world during the time of Noah and the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah are intimately related? How does that work? It's easy to see. We can simply consult the ancient Jewish commentaries known as the Midrash. Now, this will be edited, but in two different places, these ancient commentaries stated, quote, the generation of the flood was not wiped out until they wrote marriage documents for perverse marriages. The generation of the flood was not wiped out until they wrote marriage documents for perverse marriages. In other words, the sins which provoked the great flood were the same sins for which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. And I don't think you need me to tell you those are the same sins which we have going all around us today. Not only approved, promoted, and protected by our federal government, but by many other governments throughout the world, including Italy in the past week. Isn't it interesting the Sodomites have chosen the rainbow as a symbol for their movement? Noah preached for 100 years before the great flood struck. And as we know, almost no one paid any attention to his warning. The miracle of the sun is a very, very clear warning from Our Lady to upcoming events, a wake-up call with all, for all those with eyes to see. But as it was in the days of Noah, so it is in our days. Very few seem to be taking her warnings seriously either. As we close in the 100th anniversary of the miracle of the sun, we should ask ourselves if anyone has paid any attention to Our Lady's warning. So we've considered the meaning of the miracle in itself. We've briefly considered what a grave warning is in and of itself. We'll close with a brief consideration of it from the point of view of it being an unmistakable confirmation that Our Lady had been speaking to the children as an, unbelievable, an unmistakable confirmation that Our Lady had indeed delivered a message to the children. God never acts without a purpose. And so the miracle of the Son, a miracle as we've seen of unprecedented proportions, a miracle of literally biblical proportions, is a sign that points towards a corresponding message of unprecedented proportion. In that regard, we'll close with a reflection from a famous mainstream Italian journalist, Antonio Sochi, in which he speaks of the extraordinary character of the message. Quote, Fatima has received on the part of the church, which in general is always very cautious concerning supernatural phenomena, a recognition without equal in human history, in which places his apparition and this message objectively above and beyond all the so-called private revelations. All of the succeeding popes have accredited the apparitions with official discourses, acts, and pilgrimages, often invoking biblical comparisons. The third part of the secret that for the entire 20th century had fed apocalyptic rumors was revealed by the Holy See with an official approbation that has no precedent in Christian history. In fact, all the previous apparitions containing a prophetic message for humanity have been made public informally without engaging the authority of the church. But in the case of the third part of the secret of Fatima, the contrary has happened. When, after long and dramatic deliberation, the Pope personally decided to publish the text of the secret, it was announced in the most solemn manner from the sanctuary of Fatima before the Pope and the visionary by the Vatican Secretary of State. 
And it was even published on June 26, 2000, with the accompaniment of a theological commentary by the highest doctrinal authority in the church next to the Pope, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, prefect of the former Holy Office, who presented the text of the secret and his commentary at nothing less than a press conference televised worldwide. It is really impossible, after all of this, to continue to speak of a private revelation and of the relative importance of the message. The exceptional words pronounced by John Paul II say exactly the opposite. Quote, the appeal made by our Mary, our mother at Fatima, is such that the whole world, or whole church, feels obligated to respond to the requests of Our Lady. The message opposes an obligation on the church. Close quote. It is really impossible, after all this, to continue to speak of a private revelation and of the relative importance of the message. The appeal made by Mary, our mother at Fatima, is such that the whole church feels obligated to respond to the requests of Our Lady. The message imposes an obligation on the church. God never acts without a purpose, and so a miracle like this, a miracle of absolutely unprecedented proportions, points towards a corresponding message of unprecedented importance. The apocalyptic overtones of the miracle itself point toward apocalyptic overtones in the message. In her last public interview, Sister Lucia said, Father, the Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. The good continue on their way, but without giving any importance to her message. The bad, not seeing the punishment of God falling upon them, continue their life of sin without even caring, caring about the message. But believe me, Father, God will chastise the world, and this will be in a terrible manner. A miracle of unprecedented proportions points towards a message of unprecedented importance. The Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. Over the next few days, we'll meditate on that message and what it means for each one of us.